This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, Episode 17, with guest Claire Davidson. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Savorova, and welcome to the show. Claire has worked in marketing and branding for 20 years, whether founding her own e-commerce company, Urbanara, or working to develop brands for some of Berlin's biggest growth startups, such as Get Your Guide and TaxFix, Claire is passionate about brand entrepreneurship and about driving more women in tech leadership. If you want to learn how to build the right branding strategy for your company, then this episode with Claire Davidson is for you. And make sure to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for your weekly supply of knowledge. Good day, Claire. Uh, thanks a lot for finding time to come over to the studio, actually on one of the biggest public holidays in Berlin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I would like to time travel with you, Claire, to your uh, previous career and your career paths. I know that you tried a lot of careers before you started focusing on working in branding. Could you tell me about this path of exploration before finding your true passion? For sure. I mean, this path will take a little bit of time, actually. Um, the truth is that, you know, I think when you graduate, there are some people who know exactly what they want to do, right? They want to be a doctor, they're going to follow that passion, and they just go for it. In my case, it was much more around, I knew some of the things that made me happy, you know, creativity, project management, organization, but I couldn't really shape those into what would that look like as a career. And so I kind of started just by trying a few different things. So actually, when I when I was still at university, um, I started working in a PR agency and I really enjoyed all of the work around thinking about the client and how to shape the messaging. But the truth was I hated talking to journalists. I was, <laughs> I was just a real, I discovered I was a little bit of a shy baby then and I really didn't enjoy that piece of work. So I was like, okay, that's something I can take with me, but PR is not going to be my thing. And then I went and worked at the BBC, which is the big British TV Broadcasting Association. And I went and worked as a production assistant there. And that was fabulous. I loved all of the, you know, you had to organize everything, get everything ready to go to shoot. And then you'd go on shoot and it was just all consuming. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and at the end of my internship, they said, well, you know, congratulations, you can have another year working here for free. And I thought, hmm, I'm, I'm not sure if that's exactly what I want. And I said to the other interns, look, I've been offered this, you know, this year long for free. And they were like, are you crazy? You have to take it. And I realized like my heart just didn't quite beat enough to do that. Um, and I'd rather let someone else who really, really wanted it. But again, took a few things away from that of, okay, I enjoy the creativity. I enjoy, you know, that organization of getting everything together. And from there, I kind of, I'd done management and business at university. So I thought, okay, well, most of my friends have gone into management consultancy. So why don't I go see what that's like? Um, so I went and worked for a management consultancy who only worked for not-for-profit. So either government or charities or not-for-profit agencies. That was really fun because I learned a lot about strategy, which I enjoyed. But again, I was like, there came a point where I was like, I don't think this is what I can do for the rest of my life. And by coincidence, their marketing manager left and they said, hey, why don't you have a crack at marketing? And I was like, actually, I really would like to go into that field, it's a little bit more, you know, brings a little bit more of what I enjoy in life. And that's really where I started. So I um, moved up through the ranks in marketing in London. Um, you know, at the time, don't look at my wrinkles, but at the time there wasn't really Google or SEM yet, you know, so there wasn't that kind of discipline. You didn't have to choose a particular discipline. You just did marketing. 
And then when I hit 28, I think, I realized that, you know, a lot of my friends were kind of settling down, having babies. And I was stood, you know, if anyone's ever lived in London, you'll know this, like, I was stood on the same bit of platform with the same people. In England, we'd never say hello to anyone. So we just, you know, <laughs> kind of nod at each other. And I thought, my God, I'm, you know, this could be me for the next 20 years if I don't do something different. So I really started to explore, you know, what would it look like to move away from London and maybe t make a change? And actually, serendipity had it. I was uh, headhunted to take a job um, in Shanghai at a, a new startup in Shanghai. Well, actually, it was a relatively well startup in Shanghai. And so I moved out there basically with two suitcases to work on launching new markets for them. And that was really the start of, I would say, my career in startup. And from there, I just used the skills that I'd learned along the way to, to work into my branding career. But, but that moment when you said, like, this is it, this is me, was it in London or was it in Shanghai when you realized I'm at the right place and working where exactly where I see myself? I would say it was a bit of both. So I would say as I got into marketing in London, I moved more and more into branding. And so I was really enjoying that, but I wasn't enjoying just being in a normal corporation. And then I hit startup and I was like, oh my God, this is, these are these two worlds colliding that really felt exciting for me. So it was that combination of, you know, fast moving, fast growth. You have an idea, you just make it happen. And something that I knew that I'd been, I'd been kind of working towards, you know, in terms of my passions and that just bringing those two pieces together, I think is when I really found my stride. And sometimes do you think it's helpful to that, to follow the gut feeling, to follow that instinct? Can that help someone to find their passion and their right place? For me, I think for sure. Like I think, you know, often we really, you know, in these days with social media and stuff, you know, we really think that everyone's got their life sorted right from the start. And you, you're kind of wondering, well, why is it not working out for me? You know, everyone else is kind of doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And I think that's a little bit of a lie, at least for me, I, I really needed that time to find where I was going to, you know, find my flow and find my passion in life. So I think following your instinct, not being too drawn by what everyone else thinks, um, but really going after what you want and being very honest to yourself about what is it that you like? What is it that you don't like? And not being um, so focused on what other people think about what you like or don't like. Coming back to the story uh, of you going to Shanghai, was it for you a bit of like a rebel step that you wanted to go against uh, the odds and, and, and be a little bit different from your peers? Or was the offer was rather very attractive and you couldn't resist going? No, the offer wasn't very attractive. <laughs> I mean, it was a great, uh, I mean, it was a great company and the offer was fine, but it wasn't that, you know, it was, they were throwing the money at me and how could I not go? It was really this desire to just break out and do something different. And I felt like, you know, I, I was approaching 30 and I felt like if I was going to do it, it had to be now. And, you know, the truth is, I think my mum said to me, what's the worst that happens? You come home. And if you come home, so what? You'll get another job and you carry on, you know? And I think that was a really good push for me. It was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's just find out. And if it's terrible, I come home. Can you tell me how you came up with the idea to start Urbanara, which is a modern e-commerce company with a young, inspired approach to business where high quality products are offered at affordable prices? Well, so the company I was working for in Shanghai um, was focused on design furniture at affordable prices. So that was their promise. But the truth was, you know, 
we all, me and my founders all came from very high, like we were passionate about interior design. And whilst the furniture looked beautiful, it did look like design furniture, it wasn't actually, you know, what the true tenets of design means, which is high quality, lasts forever, comfortable, you know, whether you sit in it the first time or the 50th time. I think that was the first thing that we thought, mm, this doesn't feel quite right to, to our values. And this doesn't feel like what we want to be selling. And then, you know, and I think, again, this might feel familiar for anyone who's worked in startup. You know, there's a lot of time spent on coffee breaks or at least pre-COVID coffee breaks. And, you know, you're chatting and gossiping about why don't people do it better? Why don't people do it this way? And one of our friends said, well, if you guys all think you're so smart, why don't you go do it yourself? And we all kind of looked at each other and were like, maybe we should. Um, so actually, we founded the business was with two other people from the company in Shanghai, um, at least originally. And really, you know, what we wanted to focus on was high quality and affordability. So we, again, we were all turning 30, you know, we'd had 10 years of living in Ikea Vigis and we're kind of sick of that side, but there was no way that we could afford the super high end, beautiful, you know, B&B Italia sofa from El Deco magazine. And so we were really looking to see, okay, well, what would it take to find a middle ground for normal people to be able to have at least some high quality pieces in their house. And that was really the start of Urbanara. And how did you build such a successful company from scratch? Where do you start? I think the most important thing you can do is get the right founders. So, you know, I think one of the things that we see a lot, you know, we, we saw a lot amongst our founders, peers at the time, is you often start your, your, your company with friends. And the truth is friends are great and they're wonderful, but they often don't bring different things to to the team. And actually we were friends, but we weren't like great friends, but we all had really clear disciplines of what we were great at. So for me, it was really, I was running um, product and brand. So I really was on that creative side. My co-founder was really good at strate strategic thinking and more funding topics. And then the third founder that we brought in was really operations driven, something that I just have zero interest in. <laughs> And so I think that's really the first thing is making sure that you've got that right team on board because that will make and being very clear about what each of you brings to the team. From there, you know, I think you obviously need a lot of passion for your idea. At the beginning, you're in everything. You know, you've got you've got to do one day you're packing boxes, the next day you're at a factory, the next day you're whatever, making a partnership with somebody. So you've got to be someone who enjoys like that kind of chaotic, like early period. And then you've also got to be able to inspire and excite other people to come and join you, right? I mean, it's quite a big ask. It's like, come join this company that hasn't really done so much yet, but we've got a good vision and we think it's going to be great. So you've got to be able to convince other people to come and join your mission as well. And then there's just a good dose of luck in the end. You know, there's also sometimes there's serendipity, things just work and sometimes things don't. And it doesn't mean your idea wasn't great, but... Maybe you were just, it was the wrong time, it was the wrong space, uh, you didn't have something quite right. Um, so yeah, I think luck plays a lot of it. Urbanaro was built on the premises of quality, transparency and affordability. Why were these values so important for you? And how did you achieve balancing all those values on one plate? So I think, you know, in modern kind of fast fashion, throwaway culture, it, for me, at least from my personal values, it's totally irresponsible to start a business where you know that your product is only going to last for a few 
few months or a year at most, and then you're going to chuck it and buy something else. So I think for me, that was really one of the first things was we didn't want to just contribute to, to landfill. And we all had those memories of, you know, when you go to your grandma's house and she kind of puts the blanket on your bed and it's like, this blanket's been around for 50 years and it's still lovely and soft and it just feels great. And you're like, wow, where do I get this from? You know, and you can't find it anymore because you go into, you know, the normal high street brands and it's polyester or it's acrylic. And of course it looks nice, but it's not doing the function that it's supposed to do. So I think that was really the first thing was, okay, quality must be our number one. This is what we want to go after. So how do we then make it affordable? You know, what is the way to make it affordable? And when we really looked into the market, what we realized was it's actually, and then it's similar in a lot of industries, there's a lot of different middlemen. And each time that product touches a middleman, it, they add a margin, they add their margin. So the way to make it affordable is to go direct to the source. So, you know, we were sourcing our cashmere from Mongolia. We were sourcing our alpaca from, directly from Peru, linen from Lithuania. And it meant that we, could, we were really able to cut out all of those costs that other people were just passing on to the consumer. Additionally, being online only, that also saved margin there. Um, and, you know, for us, when, like if we would go to our factory in Mongolia, we would see them producing the blankets for Ralph Lauren. And we would be producing a blanket that has a similar, didn't look exactly the same, but it had a similar weight in terms of the quality of the cashmere you were getting. And, you know, you see it then come onto the market, it'd be 900 euros, and we're selling it for 300 euros. Now, of course, it's still expensive for a blanket, but you can just see this kind of scale of the margin that, that some of the retailers are playing with. I cannot imagine how much work it is to find those suppliers and to maintain relationships with them. It's work, but I have to say it's really happy work. I really, really enjoyed that part of the job. You know, you spend a lot of time sourcing, spending a lot of time kind of getting to know people. But what's really lovely about this work is the people who work at the factories or at the manufacturers are absolutely passionate about quality. So they actually are not keen to start blending. They do it because that's what the retailers are asking for. But they, as, as, as kind of manufacturers, their heart is in the quality of the product that they produce. So when you find a great manufacturer, um, actually, we very quickly became kindred spirits. And, and what was really nice was, you know, we obviously weren't ordering at all the volumes of Ralph Lauren. But because we felt this kind of connection and this belief, you know, a lot of these factories or uh, manufacturers are three, four, five times, you know, family owned, basically. So they're being handed over to father, to son, to daughter. And, you know, they enjoyed working with a company like us because we had the same values in terms of what it means to produce great product. Oh, this is so impressive. Are you still in touch with any of them? I would imagine there's some kind of special relationship bond. There's still a bond. couple that we definitely still speak to. Um, not because it's, uh, not because we order anything anymore, but be just because, you know, we've got to know each other so well over the years. Claire, I would like to go more in depth of branding as you have 20 years of experience working in marketing and branding. How different, and I will start with more of a broader question, and how different it is to build a brand for e-commerce company versus a travel marketplace and a fintech? Do you know what? People often think it's really different, and the truth is it really isn't, um, because branding is actually, you know, a lot of people have this idea that it's all about creativity and, you know, you kind of waft in and come up with an idea and waft back out again. But actually, you know, really good brands are based on a very clear framework. And the framework is firstly at a very high level. What you're looking for 
is a match between what your customers care about and what you as a company can authentically or credibly deliver, right? So when you can find that sweet spot between the two, um, that's when you, you really find magic. And how you go about doing that is a very clear framework, which is defining firstly, why? Why do you exist? And not just why do you exist today, but why do you exist what longer term? What is it that you're here to do on earth or in the next hundred years, you know, however big you want to go? Secondly, who? So being very, very clear about who your customer is. What is it that they care about? What is it that, that you know, is important to them? And often companies get really tripped up in this space because they think about demographics. So what I mean by demographics is, oh, how old are they? Or are they women? Or are they men? Very rarely is your segmentation or, you know, your target audience based on demographics. They might play into it, but very rarely. More core is their behaviors, their attitudes. You know, what, what are their hopes? What are their fears? So you need to be really rigorous about, you know, exactly defining what you want from that target audience. And then you move into, okay, well, I know my why and I know my who. So what's my what? What is it that I'm offering? You know, what is it that we as a company can credibly offer? Because there's no point in you saying, hey, I want to be, you can't be Patagonia if you're really Uber is, you know, if your founders are really Uber, like that's just, there's never going to be an authentic and credible kind of match there. So you really need to define the what for your company based on, 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 on all the things you've learned. And then finally, it's the how. And the how is your logo, it's your color palette, it's your illustrations. That's how does it perceive to the customer and, the, and, and your broader stakeholders in the outside world. Can you tell me about your branding work at Get Your Guide? Sure. So um, actually, when I joined Get Your Guide, uh, it was an interesting situation because uh, they were already an incredibly established startup. I mean, I don't even think you could call them a startup anymore. I know this is a big debate raging about what is a startup these days. But, you know, they were already very successful. Um, but the truth was they'd never really invested in their brand. So they'd always relied on what they call, you know, SEM traffic, basically. So they would push out what they offered, people would buy it, and, and they would converse and get out the door. And that had done them really well for, I think, probably six, seven years. But they realized as, you know, they started to grow and as they started, you know, competition started to get more, that they needed to stand for something in the customer's mind. You know, right now they were just a facilitator. And actually what they wanted to be was something that was connected to the customer. So um, I was brought in and actually they didn't have a brand team at the time. They had uh, two people just kind of working on PR and some, some offline marketing um, and my remit was really to try and establish a brand for them. Um, and it was a really fun process. Um, I think one, and I would say that's one of the things that I would say before you start this kind of process, make sure that you've got in place, particularly in, in the startup world, is the founders were really invested in brand. They, so they personally believed in it and they gave a lot of their time to the project. But we also assembled a team from across the organization because I think that's one of you know, the first mistakes that people often make is they, they create this brand in isolation, just maybe with the founders or maybe the top team. And actually, you really negate if you've got the, a lot of stakeholders in the room. I mean, you can't have too many. I'm talking maybe 14, 15 max. Uh, you get a huge different amounts of uh, opinions and things that you don't know. Um, so I'd really encourage anyone to start who's starting a project like this to really think about bringing you know, what I like to call brand ambassadors from across the organization and also across levels as well um, to really contribute to the project. 
And yeah, we then we hired an agency. We did a lot of research, going back to this question of the who. We spent a lot of time really defining our who and what we wanted to stand for. And then uh, we worked on, on kind of developing all of the what and the how. And we launched, I mean, it was a crazy project. We launched within six months. By the time the, the team on the branding <laughs> got to the launch, I think half of us were, one of them had an eye patch on. My arms didn't work. <laughs> and you know, I mean, we completely killed ourselves for it. Oh, but it, it was very satisfying. It was really great. And it's been, what was so nice was to see, you know, how the whole organization was really like revitalized and reinvigorated around it. And then from there, we built up the team. So within the three years, we went from about three people to about 30 people. Just to wrap up, when you are coming into the company and you want to build up the brand, so usually you start with talking to different stakeholders at different levels, just getting that opinion, those thoughts, and then you're defining the what, like what does it stand for, the brand, who is the audience, and then how, which is like the logo, the palette, everything else, and then you are ready for the launch. Exactly. Yep. You got it. You're good to go. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like an easy easy formula, but I'm sure in reality it's a lot harder and takes a a robust focus. I think, you know, and I think that's where the differences come in is, you know, the customers are different in every market. So what they care about in travel, you know, is all about the hopes of going out and discovering themselves and discovering places and kind of really, you know, finding a lot of joy in the time off. Fintech, it's much more about anxiousness and worry. Am I going to make the right, you know, choices? This is my money. This is my, you know, my livelihood. Um, so already, you know, your customer base is caring about a lot of different things. So you're not, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're dealing with a, a company like Get Your Guide, you can go a lot more fun and spirited and joyful. Whereas with Fintech, you need to take it down a little bit, be a little bit more, you know, how do you create that unique branding without, let's say, overpaying for it in terms of not focusing on the right uh, priorities versus doing something everyone expects from you? So I think that really goes back to the original like, piece of seeing what customers want and what you as founders or you as a company can, can credibly deliver. So I think where the magic comes is in that space. So if you think about if I take it, for example, you know, tax fix, you wouldn't know this yet because we're still working on the brand a little bit, but what they're actually really passionate about is having impact in the world. So what they really believe in is that financial health or financial well-being should be available to everybody. And once you dig into that and well, what does that mean? What would that look like? That's where you can really find like the magic nuggets that will make your company special or different. And that's really the key of branding, right? Is what you want to do is tell your customers what you're about and also say why you're different to everybody else. Um, and so I think spending a lot of time, I would really always advocate spending a lot of time getting to know your customers. And if you're in a really early stage and you can't afford 50K on market research, which you know even at Urban Ara we couldn't afford in the early days, at least make sure you're going out doing qualitative research. Go and speak to groups of five or six customers. It costs you nothing but time. And you'll be amazed at what you learn from from listening to people. So first, I would really advocate, you know, speak a lot to your customers and then really dedicate the time internally. You know, I think you often think that, oh, it's an hour's meeting or you can do it in a three hour sprint. The truth is you can't because it takes that time to to chat and to kind of kind of spitball off each other and brainstorm until you find a space where you're like, 
oh, wow, this is really an exciting space. This is something that is different and is special and feels exciting for us as a company as well. This feels like it chimes with our values. This chimes with what we want to be doing in life. And that's where you'll find the magic, I think. And how does the process look like when you work on rebranding versus strengthening the existing company brand? Do you have a different approach here? So I would say, I mean, I think the first thing is that a branding is never finished, right? It's a continuous work. You're constantly developing your brand. So I think if you're at a stage where you're doing a full rebrand, it's normally one of three things. Either you've completely lost your way and you've got no idea what you're doing. Two, you are massively deviating from a route that you already had. So, you know, if you take someone like TransferWise, who've just recently uh, rebranded, it's because they're adding huge numbers of products where their old brand is, feels redundant now. Or in actually in the case of many startups, um, particularly those that were started without a brand kind of affinity at the start, they actually never bothered writing down at the beginning what their brand was. So they get to a point where they've hired so many people who are just inventing their own brand. They're like, okay, we need to codify this. We need to kind of get this in a space where everyone's kind of talking the same language because one of the worst things that can happen in brand is that you're not consistent. So consistency is the key to a, to a great brand. You know, every touch point needs to absolutely say what you're about and who you are. So I don't think principally there isn't a huge amount, you know, the, the practice is the same. Either you're starting really big and saying, okay, let's start from scratch and codify exactly who we want to be for the next five, 10 years, or you're tweaking at the edges, you know, a bit here, a little bit there, you know, uh, to try and keep the brand on the path that you've set for itself. I guess the major difference is that a rebrand takes a lot of time and it's a little bit more expensive normally. Maybe you can shed some light on what are the don'ts in branding strategy, especially for startups. Don't try and rush the process. Be really clear on the stages that need to be taken. You know, I think in growth, we, we always want to do it faster and better. And don't get me wrong. Like if you, the, get, the, the brand rebrand we did at Get Your Guide would have probably taken 18 months in a corporate. So you can do it in six months. It's not realistic to do it in two weeks and you need to be really disciplined as a brand manager or as a head of brand and, and be quite clear with people about why you can't do it in two weeks because it's just not feasible. I think the second thing I would say is don't believe often prevailing opinion that we know our customers because the truth is nobody ever knows their customers in Berlin startups. You know, they say, yeah, but we've seen who, who, who's coming in. We've got data analysis. And it's, the question is, okay, but these are your current customers, but who should be your customer for the future? How are you going to grow? Like, this is what you're looking for. Your current customers, fine. You've got a few random first adopters who responded to your Instagram ad or responded to your SEM, but this isn't representative of who your market might be in the future. So I think often people say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know our customers. We don't need to do market research. I would always, always encourage you to really push to do some research. And then I think a little bit going back to what I said before, make sure the founders are involved, absolutely critical, but make sure they're not the only voices in the room and also not the only senior voices in the room. So there should be a, a blend of, of seniority in the room as well. This is excellent insights. <laughs> Speaking to you as a founder and entrepreneur, in our previous exchange, you mentioned about the cult of entrepreneurship. Could you elaborate what do you mean by that? 
So I think what we've seen over the last, you know, 10 years is that there's this belief that everyone should become their own entrepreneur, you know, that this is the pinnacle of success in uh, particularly growth in tech environments. And for me, that's a really dangerous belief. And it's also really, it's just a, a fallacy, you know, and I think you can even see it. So if you if you start kind of outside of entrepreneurship, but if you start in, in the world of just normal teams, you know, everyone wants to be a team lead because they think that's what's going to progress them in their career. And actually, you know, what we call an individual contributor track or an IC track is just as worthy a career path. And I really would love for people to think about, you know, what is it that makes me happy? Do I love being deep and specialist in my subject? Or do I want to spend my time growing people, developing people, you know, because they're just two very, very different career paths. Um, and neither are better or worse than another. And the same is true of entrepreneurship. You know, I think people see these big founders with the power and the money and, you know, getting all the fame for changing the world. But what you don't see is how much bullshit and how much hard work is behind that. And you've got to be really clear with yourself. You know, is that something you enjoy? Is that something that's going to make you happy? Because if it's not, you'll kill yourself and you'll have nothing to show for it. You know, and I think one of your previous guests, Georgie um, from Tier, who I love, I think she's super impressive. You know, she's really clear with herself. She says, look, I enjoy Series C. I enjoy taking someone else's idea and I think she describes it as exploding it or making it, you know, huge. And that's just such a mature point of view of saying, this is what I enjoy and this is how I can define success for myself. And I would love for people to kind of think about that because I think entrepreneurship is hard. It's really hard. So you mentioned success. How would you define success for yourself then? It's really changed over the years. You know, I'm, I'm definitely no spring chicken anymore. And I think for me now, it's when you're happy to come in on a Monday morning. You know, I think that's uh, work is so much of our lives. It plays such a big part in your life and particularly in a growth startup, right? You're, you're always going to be giving 110%. And the question is, does it, does it align with your values? Does it align with what you care about? Do you feel happy to be there? And, and do you enjoy the people that you're working for or with? So I think for me, you know, these days I'm really careful about the startups I join I want the founders to be people that I enjoy. I, I think are personally people I want to spend time with. And, you know, and I think that's actually what really attracted me to the tax, to tax fix and the role of tax fix is the founders are just so driven by similar values. And that was something that was really exciting for me. And before we wrap our conversation, I would like to ask you, what advice would you give to someone looking into starting their own business right now? So first, I think, you know, going back to the cult of entrepreneurship, check why you want to do it. Um, but if you've got an idea that you're super passionate about, firstly, go for it. Don't spend too much time doing the pros and cons, um, but really, you know, spend some time really digging in. And when I say digging in, the most important thing is to work out your business case. So can you make money with this idea? There are lots of great ideas. The first key, particularly in you know, small startup is you have to have cash flow. You've got to have enough money coming in to keep you going and be able to develop. So I would say that, you know, firstly, start and make sure that you, you've got a business plan that works. Then think about the team you want to bring in. Do you want to do this on your own or would you like, you know, do you need somebody else to, to kind of bring something else to the pie? Personally, for me, I'm not someone who likes working independently. I love working with a close knit team of two or three. So that would always be for me something that I would be looking for. 
and then dare. You've got to just, you know, at the beginning, and I really learned this the hard way, I think, you know, in branding, we hate putting out anything that is not pixel perfect. You know, it's, it hurts my eyes and I feel anxious about it. But the truth is you don't have time at the start. You, you've got to just put things out, see if people respond, and then, you know, work your way up from there. And so I would say really go out there, test your ideas, speak to people, ask them, do they think it's a good idea? What would they like out of this? And, and then keep going. So many takeaways. And Claire, you mentioned that you never wear headphones when you're outside because you're very curious about surroundings. <laughs> But I do hope you do an exception for the Women Authors of Achievement podcast and take one of the episodes for a walk with you <laughs> in one of the days. I certainly will. <laughs> and you do a lot of mentoring, Claire, in particular for women in business. And I think this question will be an easy one for you. Can you tell me who you would nominate as a woman author of achievement? So I thought a lot about this question. And um, actually, I'm, I'm going to choose someone uh, who's just a friend of mine, but someone who I've really come to, to respect and, and enjoy their company over the last few years is Julia Randall, who is the sales director at Get Your Guide. And on paper, we have nothing in common. So we have, you know, she is a insanely driven commercial salesperson. And I am kind of a much more, I would say, introvert, calm branding person. Uh, but we were both lucky enough to be selected to go to the SoftBank Women in Leadership uh, Conference in San Francisco. So it was a big conference where they were bringing over all of their women from different parts of their portfolio companies. And it was just a crazy inspirational conference. I mean, when do you ever get a chance to be in a room with a hundred other super powerful, you know, growth tech startup women? It was just, it was really wonderful. And we really bonded very quickly and realized that, you know, what we enjoyed was this bias for action and this kind of passion for not waiting around, but actually making stuff happen. And also just being really positive, looking, you know, really glass half full. So we actually decided to start just a little business on the side um, where we've been working on developing programs for women in growth tech leadership. And I think why for me, why she's a woman um, of author of her own achievement is that, you know, she, she so she's not actually based in Berlin. She's based in Dubai. So she's Swedish originally. She started in Sweden and then worked her way up through Africa. So through Egypt. And then she ended up in the Middle East. So all of these countries that are just, you know, t traditionally not super easy, I would say, for, for women and particularly not women in leadership. And she just has this spirit of like, never give up, make it happen. I mean, she really, you know, if you're talking about author of achievement, she's got that in spades. And, you know, where she's now is, is, is just really impressive. And I just I'm really looking forward to seeing where she goes next in her own career. And I find it really inspiring to spend time with her. This is exciting. Well, I hope she gets to visit you in Berlin very soon. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> well, Claire, thank you so much for today's conversation. So many learnings and takeaways about branding. I think anyone listening to this episode is like equipped to kickstart their branding strategy for their company. So thank you for this very inspirational and practical insights. And I wish you a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me as well. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. 
If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.